0: Hey everybody, we are back once again on That's Criminal. I appreciate you joining me. As always, the deal still stands: uh, like, subscribe, and rate the uh, That's Criminal, and I'll send you a free ebook—Brothers Keeper, Shattered Circle, or The Wraith. And speaking of Brothers Keeper, spoilers has been so well received on Audible. Um, thank you very much to everybody. Um, that Chaz and I decided to follow it up with Brothers Keeper. Uh, Deep UC operation gone wrong, uh, international human smuggling ring, and the uh, slimy corruption of the Charleston elite. We In the middle of that, we got two cops that are willing and almost do tear the city apart to take it all down. So hopefully that's coming out uh, later in this month, and I will keep you up to date, so more to follow. Tonight, I get to talk to Marla Bernard, author of By the Side of the Road, the true crime story of the kidnapping rape and murder of ann harrison marla is a passionate victims rights advocate author and public speaker she's also a retired police sergeant instructor and contributor to national law enforcement publications recently she was filmed in an upcoming true crime series in the united kingdom for an episode based on her first book through the rain hopefully we get talked about both of them tonight she and her husband reside in the Midwest. So Marla, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Absolutely. So, um, by the side of the road, uh, forgive me if I if I mess anything up, but uh, basically, um, Kansas City, east side of Kansas City, um, girl, a fifteen year old girl, Anne, basically waiting at the end of her driveway to go to school, where she goes to school at uh, Raytown South High School. Um, Ten minutes after walking out her door, she disappears. Nobody sees a thing. uh the bus shows up she's not there um, and the response quick and immediate, but there's nothing to go on and so um that's how we get kicked off she was ultimately she was kidnapped by uh, two uh long term career criminals uh, raped and murdered as we said, and then found abandoned in a in a trunk uh several days after uh, the her initial disappearance so what i I um took away there's there's a couple takeaways that 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 this book, I mean, uh, just a horrific crime in the way you capture it, you know, in and, and some in some instances, and I think it's more on the on the TV side than in the in the literature. But there's some sometimes in true crime, it can feel a little exploitive. And I felt with this book, I took away from your book, the stories on the correct side of telling a true crime story was the victim impact. Uh, the professionalism of the investigators and thus the um what can end up being absolutely torturous uh, when you're a family trying to find closure navigating our justice system uh, so i i really really wanted to have you on so we could chit chat about some of that cuz it was you the way you captured that investigation right through the end uh, just just highlighted all the best parts of how a community just beats um as you put it evil of criminals mm-hmm. So, thank you. yeah. So how, uh, how did you get started with this, uh, with this,
1: um, I had written a book previously. It was, um, more from the perspective of two cases that my husband had. Those, those were, uh, my husband, David is, um, Former law enforcement, he's a retired homicide sergeant, and he spent 22 of his 28 years in homicide, which um, I think is a record in a lot of places. I know it is with the Kansas City Police Department, um, almost stayed there too long in some respects. And um, the first book that I wrote was about two child murders here in Kansas City that he had back to back. And um, the length of time you would think with a a child murder, when there's a child missing that immediately people are going to be looking for them. You will solve them so quickly. And that was not the case. And so I told that from the perspective of um, a police officer, a wife, a mother, um, and, and just watching the toll it took not only on my husband and his uh, squad of detectives, but the community as a whole and our own family. So it was more of a personal um, story that I wrote. And um, we have known Ann Harrison's parents for many, many years. And it was actually Bob Harrison who had said to me, I know a book you can write and um I felt very honored to be able to do that, but it was also a pretty daunting task I, I i felt um it it had to be told in such a way that people could read the story and um give Anne a voice and also um, l- see the actual um transcripts from the court so that this I I actually had a review that said oh you know you wasted too much time putting all this information in but you it in some ways it gave the the perpetrators a voice as well not that I wanted to acknowledge them in any way but to lend credence to the fact that this is not an opinion this is the actual, this is what occurred from a detective's point of view so that you could follow the case all the way through the court process up to the execution. Um, so that's kind of the, the provenance of how the book got started. Um, and again, to give Ann Harrison a voice and kind of, I don't know that there's ever really closure Um, Certainly not for a family, but there is healing. And I think that was important for this entire community because this was a community that really rallied and um, took this very personally, took the case very, very personally. Everybody that touched it, um, whether it was a teacher, a neighbor, just somebody that read the story, it really was um, important, I think, to give them an opportunity to go back and kind of follow it and understand that there really was, um, an end point in some respects to this case.
0: Yeah. I I think, um, you, you said closure earlier and I said it also, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't, I don't know how you could ever actually recover fully from something like having your 15 year old daughter gone one day, you know? Um, but to, to to know that Mr. Harrison asked you to take on that story, uh, was there any um, reticence there? Was it was it uh, that that's a daunting test? I mean, it, the way you explained it, you're representing the entire community. You're you're telling, you know, an impactful story for an entire city, not to I, mention the parents.
1: I think my reluctance. Um, Putting the story together was not that hard. I um, seem to have a knack for writing. Um, It's my first love. But um, I think the hardest thing for me, and it was a real learning opportunity, um, was to approach Bob and Janelle Harrison and ask them questions for fear that I would dredge up something or make them uncomfortable or having to revisit the process. And what I learned from that and what I have learned from other victim families is they don't mind talking about it. Recognizing their loved one is important to them and they are willing and, um, they being acknowledged and having them remembered um, is important to them. So that was that was a learning, uh, a learning opportunity for me, because, again, I these are people that I know very well. And um, I I think, um, again, just asking some of those little details, not so much about the case, but about Anne and. Um, it gave me a, a chance to really get closer to her, get closer to the family. I knew stories at, anecdotally, but to to kind of get in my own comfort zone with that and talk to them, because if there is a takeaway that people, they are victims as well, and the they need to be able to talk about their loved ones. And um, it's important to them. And um, I I knew that. I knew that anecdotally. I knew that through the experience of, you know, with the first two cases that I talked about with the two little girls, one was named Angel Heart, one was named Erica Green, um, who the second one was known as Precious Doe in our community. She went un, unnamed for many years. and my husband and i became de facto parents and um charter members of parents of murdered children here in Kansas City because they didn't have anybody to represent them at functions or whatever and so i got to know those individuals pretty well but i really um, you know became so deeply ingrained in Anne's case and um took that as an opportunity. So, um with my law enforcement experience, the case files, all of that, some of it w- was hard. Um, I think for anybody reading this story, it's very hard to know what she went through, but um I was able to kind of plow through that. It was um, again, just with the family. Um, and that was that was just me. it it was, um, because they were absolutely as gracious and, and, um, supportive as they could possibly be.
0: I can imagine that took a lot of strength to, to, for them to be willing to, to dig into that. That's, that's a, and it kind of goes to, you know, we'll talk about the timeline later on, but the appeals processes and the stops and starts and they, you know, they finally get a win when they see these two going to, prison and hitting a death penalty but then appeal after appeal after appeal and every time they go to these i mean at some point i I noticed that it was before the victim impact statements really were codified um but still every time you go to one of these hearings it's like ripping a band-aid off again you gotta you gotta hear stuff you don't want to hear you gotta start over again Um,
1: exactly and they had to they had to sit in the same room with these individuals
0: over and over and over
1: over and over and over again Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah that's the, that often uh doesn't get remotely the attention that it needs. I mean the and all these laws are written for the right reasons helping support victims but it's uh you know some idiot can can file an appeal because he thought the judge was drunk when he imposed a sentence on him and um that gives you two more years of sitting around wondering if this is ever going to end, you know.
1: Well and as as you well know with your background it- there's a reason why they call it the criminal justice system, and it should yeah. not be that way. It should, I mean, it sh- law should be fair. People should be tried justly and fairly, but when you're, you know, when you have truly exhausted all your appeals, it at some point there has, there's your closure. It has to stop and the decision has to be made we're going to overturn this and give them life in prison without the possibility of, of parole or we're going to move forward with the death penalty.
0: Yeah, due process is supposed to be a fair system and uh it's it's gotten sideways and you know for whatever reason it's gotten sideways. I mean, I don't think there's a badge carrier that exists that would you know, that wouldn't let 10 bad guys go to make sure the one innocent guy doesn't go to prison. You know, exactly. I, I, that was never even a I would I'd have no I would let those bad guys go. I'll get them another day. But I'm not sending I'm not going to be a part of somebody innocent being put through that system.
1: Exactly.
0: So it's a fair system, but it can be abused. And you you did if, uh, the way you laid out just that kind of uh, just dragging on. Um, And again, we can talk about the timeline a little bit. I don't want to let this one part go. When you mentioned uh, getting to know Anne, right in the beginning of the book, um, you almost open and it's, and it's odd. um, At least when I was reading, I was like, oh, that's a very interesting antidote. But I, I wonder how that's going to play. And it was uh, a softball coach. It was a softball Mm -hmm. coach doing a reference check on Anne moving up a league. And, uh, the, the, you know, the coach they're referencing, I don't know where you, who you talk to about it, what, where the interview was from, but, um, the coach he calls is like, yeah, she's not going to be your best player, but she's the absolute glue. That's going to make your team a champion to the, and I know I'm butchering the quote, but that small little piece of a human is, uh, that's a giant, that's a giant figure. When you think about it, that's a very important role, you know, and a great way of defining a person.
1: Well, and for uh, a little girl who had just turned 15 years old, she made such a major impact on so many people because that coach, a gentleman named Dan Meng, um, continued to coach softball in Raytown, Missouri, which is where Ann played softball. And those teammates stayed on And over the years, I believe it was 25 years, they had annual softball games um, and did fundraisers. They raised over, um, it was $100,000. And when Ann was abducted, the Center for Missing Children was just getting started. And those monies that went to... To build that, and now we look at, you know, the the missing and exploited children, which now um, has become part of a part of the federal uh, federal agency, and I think people know it very well from John Walsh and Adam Walsh's story. Um, but it was in its infancy, and for those people in the community to stick by, and you know, people that grew up with Anne. A lot of them who didn't know Anne, knew of Anne and the family. It is such a testament to who they were or who Anne was and who the family is, um, that they were able to accomplish all that. So she, for her little over 5,000 days that she was on this earth, she made um, a huge impact on people. Huge impact.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, it just, uh, the moment you said that, that the little couple of lines between those two coaches talking was such a testament to that. It was just, it, uh, I was, you know, as it played, as the story played on, it was like, Oh yeah. Okay. We know exactly who we're fighting for here. You know, it was, uh, but I just wanted to mention, I just thought it was a, a beautiful catch, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's, um, not to jump around, but you mentioned it. The, uh, I thought the transcripts were some of the most powerful, um, parts of the book. Cause it showed the system working. Um, it, it just showed, you know, what the investigators had to do to get these guys. Um, and we'll put their names on them, uh, Taylor and, and Nunley. Um, but, uh, the thing with that case that I noticed and, and immediately I was like, oh man, this is going to hurt. Cause it's a, it was a stranger crime and there's yes. homicides. There's nothing, there's no witnesses. Um, even when, even when she's found, there's still, you know, it's just the dogged, uh, just shoe leather uh, detective work that went into just scrambling leads. Just, uh, I mean, you're muddying through all the tips that are coming through. So you got to triage that you got to end up working with auto crimes. There's that. And this is all before, you know, we might have NCIC, but we don't have the Center for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We don't have the crime stoppers, then the 24 hour news cycle um, and all the, the link systems that connect all these agencies now so that all that Intel was so spread out um, the way that it was documented the all the, the baby steps, these guys took to actually put names to these guys. I, I thought it was uh, amazing. I don't want to overtalk you. Um, but oh, I'll no. also say that um, and it's, it's not often mentioned because everybody loves the crime scene stuff. Everybody loves their forensics. But very seldom do you get to see, you know, what what's what is gonna make these forensics impact this case. You know, now we have DNA, so everybody's like, "Oh, hey, slap some DNA on them, we're good." But uh, when you put those transcripts in there of their statements, plus the reports of the forensics work, um, you know, they turn on each other. But the forensics walk us through exactly what happened, so you're able to just corroborate or discorroborate every bit of their statements and. They're talking basically to attack each other, and we got the scientists on the back end with all these little things we can point to, saying no, nope, no, nope, lie here, got you there. Here's here's my data that says it was. I I loved it, but I'm also a, a crime scene geek, so <laughs> <laughs> I just I just thought I'd mention that. But I mean, um, the the investigators, did you how how close did you work with them?
1: Um, very closely, and I I will tell you that. Um, when we talk about impacts on people, to this day, um, they still talk about it um, with such reverence and such a, a recollection. Those details, um, off the and again, this happened in 1989, but they can tell you where they were standing, where what happened minute by minute, and um, some of the, some of the very best, um, leadership you will ever find. Um, Troy Cole, who was the sergeant who initially received the case, um, was a very experienced investigator who handled, uh, a major serial killer case here in Kansas City, the Bob Burdella case. And, um, he handed it off to a gentleman named Pete Edland, who was also a seasoned investigator, and they had um, to work for them. Um, they were handpicked. The, the teams that worked for them, those detectives were handpicked. They were the best of the best to um, be involved in in uh, major cases and violent crimes. And. Um, There was a lot of emotion when I interviewed them, which was, (coughs) excuse me, impactful for me and I think really affected the story that, um, and I'm not naming names, so I I think I can can say this without embarrassing anybody, that there was actually one detective who broke down when I was interviewing him. And um, I have to tell you, that's hard. These these are these are seasoned detectives who have seen a little bit of everything and they still carry that emotion with them. And it just it wasn't just Anne's case, but I think because of who she was and how young she was, it did um, make a make a major impact on all of them. And there was a lot of shoe leather involved and. And. it wasn't just Kansas City, Missouri. We had the vehicle that Ann was found in and a subsequent vehicle that they were using, they being Nunley and and Taylor, uh, in a crime were both stolen in Grandview, Missouri, which is a a, a suburb of Kansas City that kind of um, butts up against Lee Summit, Missouri, that butts up against Raytown, that kind of all circle Kansas City on the southeast side and every one of those individuals from the dispatcher to the just the City services, first responders, anybody that thought that they could help in some way really did and rallied around and shared their resources. They were so forthcoming. There was never any, there were no border wars. This was all about, all about solving a crime. And, and it's a testament to what these individuals went through.
0: Yeah. And, and, it, and it just it's laid out so well that, I mean, canvas after canvas and these guys chasing this lead, these guys chasing this lead. And um, when you tied it in the way they the way they developed it through the cars, they were like, all right, we don't have any personal evidence right now. We go back and we start back at the beginning. We look at this car. All right. We got this car and we look at the pattern because, OK, uh, we I should probably we should probably explain Taylor and Nunley, basically career criminals. Um, But their, their gig is, is car theft and, um and auto parts. So what they do is they, they travel around uh, getting high drinking and then stealing from cars or stealing cars uh, as their main source of income and, and just happened to be at the absolute wrong place at the wrong time uh, with these two guys that, that I, I knock it, I, I put it down to just. You define it better, but just the savage lack of impulse control and empathy that most people just have. Um, that these guys just they they saw her and they just moved like like a shark. They just didn't even think. They just moved and then did what they did and just kept right on going. The lack of empathy was astounding, even at the end. Uh when we get into those transcripts again at the end, um but with the detectives, they they got nothing. They've got they've they've got stuff going to the lab. They don't have any any no fingerprints jump out right at right quick. We can't just start swabbing and throwing DNA out there. Uh, blood takes time, but um, there's no real forensics taken out of the trunk. So they they pivot using all those resources you're talking about and start talking to the auto guys, talking starting talking to the grand theft guys, and they look at pattern of car theft to ta- to end up getting. A name. W- weren't they able to generate Taylor's name based on his use of the, his his uh, modus operandi of, of boosting a car?
1: It, it was actually Nunley's. Nunley, Taylor okay. also used that um, and learned it from Nunley. Nunley had a certain um method of the way that he would punch out the lock on the uh, driver's side, the way that he would break the steering column. One of the first things he would do is pull the dome light and, you know, which allowed him then to work in secrecy, if you will. Um, he would pull the radio out. He would pull the ashtray. Well, I always the ashtray, I guess, to get to the radio, but would always throw that ashtray in the back seat. Um, generally looked for t-tops what they would do is they would go around they would t-tops was the big thing at that time there was um a a parts store if you will chop shop (laughs) shop, that would would give them cash and or drugs um for the the uh, property that they would bring in So they would get high, they would drink, drive around, do whatever else that they wanted to do, steal some more stuff. They also were um, uh, robbers. There were several, and that was part of their downfall, was a couple of instances that Nunley was involved in with the, the TIPS hotline caller. The crimes that they committed together helped connect the story and helped uh, validate some of the information that he was sharing and and also to help um, kind of support, um, whether intentionally, actually it was independently, um, corroborate what Nunley was saying about who actually, physically kidnapped Anne, and so that that tips hotline individual uh a person named um kareem hurley was able to state one of the things nunley would never allow you to do is drive a vehicle that he was he he wouldn't ride with you he had to be in control of the automobile he would never let anyone else drive. And Hurley substantiated that. Other, other witnesses, other um individuals who knew them would substantiated the fact that Nunley always had to be in control of the vehicle and um stated that Taylor jumped out of the car and grabbed and when he was supposed to just grab her purse that was sitting on the ground next to her. He decided, left the purse, took the kid. Um, and uh, that, was, um, that was kind of a bone of contention between them, who grabbed Anne, who raped her first. Um, and um, a- as, it, as it came to pass, it was Nunley who was operating the vehicle and Taylor who pulled her into the vehicle. Yep. But and, they went to Nunley's mother's house. So I mean he was in he was equally as responsible for things. He just happened to be in control of the automobile when she was when she was taken.
0: And that was another powerful part of the transcripts when um they do put Nunley in that position. And uh you were there, yes. He was doing this, yep uh did you think of doing anything to stop him nope never even considered it just walked just went upstairs and it's just the lack of empathy and then discussions they had on what to do with her just the 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 two of them um but those 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 techniques of of stealing that car put them in and he's talking too much to kareem put them all together and and then they they just wrap them up from then they just they and they really it was a tailored and I could be scrambling, but, um, Taylor was already locked up. Like, so they, uh, once they put the two of them together, they just went and grabbed him first and see if he'd talk. Right. He
1: he was incarcerated for other, um, for, um, other offenses. And so it made it pretty easy to find him. It was pretty convenient for them to be able to locate him. Um, one of the things that he had done is he was in a halfway house and um was going to be charged with some other crimes and he escaped the halfway house um was subsequently arrested and he was in um, i believe it was the facility in cameron missouri um so it made it pretty easy for the detectives to be able to go up there interview him get it all on on videotape and um yeah, that was an experience. Mister. Mister. Taylor had a little taste of of street justice during during that that in after the interrogation when he was taken back to his cell.
0: Yeah, I, I highlighted that in the book, and <clears> the <throat> and the best part was a bureaucracy that they thrived on to keep their lives going was a bureaucracy that got him absolutely pummeled. <laughs> you know
1: exactly.
0: And uh, and I don't want to give the book away, but basically the cops come and talk to Taylor. Taylor Taylor gives a gives a confession. And um, the word is immediately out in prison that he raped and killed a 15 year old girl. And that policy says he's got to be put in lockdown after that. But the warden isn't at work that day. And the warden's only the only person that can approve it. So he gets put back in gen pop and what, 80, 80 different guys take their turns on him.
1: I, um. I'm not sure how many. I know he ended up with 80, 80 stitches.
0: stitches. 80 stitches. Yes. Yeah. 80 stitches. Um,
1: 80 stitches. Yeah. And um and you talk about general general population, and I don't need to jump ahead, but that was one of the things that I think and I, I'm Missouri born and raised, but I was not and in law enforcement, but was not aware that we at that time, at the the time that these two were incarcerated, we were the only state that allowed death row inmates to be in the general population. And what we learned from that was um, that they had access to drugs, they had access to the gym, they had they friends they were just living the life every day for 26 years so that that image of um perry smith and and dick hickock and in cold blood and they're locked in these cells is certainly is not that was not the case in Missouri they were just out doing what they always did the yeah, only yeah. difference was they couldn't go beyond the fence that was the only difference.
0: Yeah, and the way you put it was exactly that. They they were perfectly comfor- comfortable just with a smaller footprint. And Exactly. Yep, and they're guaranteed free cable and free meals and a place uh-huh. to sleep. So Yeah. Yeah, that uh, the system was not working there. Uh, pretty simply 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 put um but yeah to so to to get to the case they Taylor talks pin, pins it all on Nunley and then they and Nunley Nunley was tough. He was actually a smart criminal. He wouldn't talk he refused talk to talking to anybody kept his rights um he didn't ask for a lawyer at first oh he asked, he asked for a warrant when they asked for uh for some things so he was playing tough until oh, he, he knew the statement. system
1: he was yeah. he was um he was a regular and he knew the system he knew how it worked not that Taylor didn't but um Nunley was a very very tough individual and that was one of the things that Kareem Hurley, the, the tipster, said is interview Taylor first because then Nunley will give it up. But if you go to Nunley first, you're not going to get anything. And that is exactly how it played out. Exactly how it played out.
0: Yeah. And and that was another place I was so happy that he had those transcripts because he didn't even think about it. He's just, he just they, they let him read Taylor's statement. And he's like, nope, turn on the camera. Let's talk. exactly because
1: he uh, originally when they confronted him when they brought him in sat him down said here's what we have here's what we know he and here's what michael taylor said he said he would never say that about me that is not true and they put the tape in showed him the video and said there you go and when he looked at his quote unquote friend, um, partner, whatever you want to call him, um, associate. Um, he, he said, now that's, let me tell you what really happened and gave his story, um, or his version of it. Um, and you, you were, you're absolutely right. There was no, it was pretty matter of fact, there was not a lot of, um, there were no tears, there was no emotion. It's just this is what we did, this is how we did it. This is um, you know, what transpired. It was in his the basement of his mother's home where where he was staying at that time. Had a couple different places he was staying, but that was one of them. Used the kitchen knives. Um actually, um, you know, it's it's just awful. Put Put the knives back. Um, it, it and there was no, there was no forethought to any of this. Oh, we she heard our voices. We better because I did quote unquote blindfold her. Um, she was forced down in onto the floor uh, of the car, held down where she couldn't raise her head up. They took a, a dirty sock out of the back of the car and tied um tied a blindfold on her, but she heard them. She heard Taylor call Nunley by his first name. And so they decided, well, rather than go to jail because they could go to jail for rape and kidnapping, we better kill her. And you know, so there is never there's no logic there. there's no forced thought, there's no planning. it's just this here's what we're gonna do in the heat of the moment, and here's this um physical gratification, and well, well, now I guess we better kill her um,
0: yep And i'm I'm sorry I'm not looking i'm I'm listening no, to you, but that, there's a highlight where here where you just lay out. Um, basically, you define a criminal so well in it. You started by saying logic, or, or um, and I and I'm trying to find it. But basically, there's a, there's a policy of the ward, and I highlighted that part too. um I don't want to I don't want to take away from the conversation, but basically, you just laid out what these the the lack of thought process in these two individuals, wherever they came in, came from, however they were raised. Um, there was a lack of forethought, just living on impulse, doing whatever they wanted with zero um, empathy for anybody else. They were just, they they were just violent opportunists and she was just there. And exactly. And even, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, overly extravagant what, how they, but they tortured her, psychologically tortured her, um, had a, just a conversation about what to do with her, with her just laying there right in front of him, completely vulnerable, a 15 year old kid. Um, well,
1: and, and, and to that point, when we talk about no forethought, no logic, we're just, you know, this is, this is our, our way of behaving Anne had just turned 15 years old. She was barely 15 and she had been Um, violently abducted, she had been uh, um, manhandled in the car, fairly beaten. She was forced to get out of the car and crawl on her hands and knees so that nobody would see her through the window of the garage. She was violently raped and severely injured. But that little girl kept her wits about her and started to negotiate with them and said, if you call my parents here, let me give you their phone number. And they pretended like they wrote it down. They were like, yeah, 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 we'll do it. They will give you money to let me go. She begged for her life. And she was she this was a very shy little girl. But she had her wits about her and she was going to do everything she could do to stay alive. And um, they did psychologically torture her because they promised her that they would call her parents. They did not. They had no intention of it. They made her crawl back, get dressed and blindfolded, crawl back Uh, on her hands and knees, put her in the trunk of the car, um, told her, oh, we just have to do this because we don't want anyone to see you. And then they brutally stabbed her. And the thing that we know about Nunley and his his mean streak is when he stabbed her in the neck, he twisted the knife.
0: And they left her before she expired, according to the scene, a court, she hadn't expired. They just left her to suffer and die all by herself.
1: The medical examiner determined that she remained conscious for at least 15 minutes and remained alive for about two hours.
0: Yep. Any shred of empathy. There wasn't there. They just shut, they literally shut the door and moved on to the next line. He went to his girlfriend's house after they moved the car. That was it. Like, yeah. Yep. That's just, and that was just uh, the. And then they went back, yeah.
1: Then they went back to doing what they did best, which was back to back auto thefts that, and this is what was so hard for investigators. And you had Grandview, Missouri, and Kansas City, and Raytown, and Lee Summit, all these little towns chasing their tails because it was like, my God, they were just here. Here's this vehicle. It's abandoned, or somebody's reported a car stolen. We found it over here. It fits absolutely to a T, the MO. And then somebody else's car was stolen, and they were back around. And it was just a constant race against time to try and track these unknown, at that point, individuals. But they just went back to business as usual.
0: yep Yep. and
1: you know with and 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 thought it was okay well we put her in the truck of a car we went to another neighborhood we dumped her dumped that car the you know nunley drove the car taylor followed in the other vehicle that was stolen at the same time that the blue monte carlo that ann was in from the same location followed in that vehicle and they you know, Nunley hopped in that car and um off they went. He hopped in the car behind the the steering wheel, by the way. He wouldn't let Taylor drive any farther.
0: Yep. And and to to put a further point on Anne, uh she did not give up when they grabbed her the first time. She put a fight up with against two grown men um the first time when they grabbed her off right off the street. There's evidence to support that. They well, they both yeah. admitted it that she was she was fighting for her life when they grabbed her. Um, So her head was in the game, like even to the point where she was negotiating at the end.
1: Well, and when she realized when she was in the trunk that she wasn't getting out, she did try and fight. Um, But, you know, obviously she was overpowered by two grown men with knives. And um, they landed 10 blows that um, pretty much any one of them would would have been fatal without some inner intervention by uh, medical personnel, somebody to intervene. So
0: yeah, absolutely horrible to think about the way they, they went about that. And in the, the horror of, of her last 15 minutes, just hard to hard to fathom for a 15 year old kid. Um, For,
1: for anyone, for I'll anyone. You, yes. yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. But the, a little girl that, you know, just walked walked to the end of her driveway and set her purse and her books and her flute down and was just waiting for the bus.
0: Yep. Yep. So um once they pin each other pin pin them against each other, um, neither one of them, they both plea. They they didn't go to trial, um, whether that's their criminal experience or not, but they're both they they admitted their guilt and they were both given the death penalty.
1: Yes, they had um, on the advice of counsel, they um, because it was a death penalty, potential death penalty case, and the prosecutor in uh, Jackson County um, elected to uh, try it as a death penalty case, they felt that they would do better if they went to a bench trial because the judge that was hearing the case had a reputation for hearing those types of cases and um, always handing down um, life without the possibility of per- parole in lieu of the death penalty. So they thought they thought that was pretty much a slam dunk that he was not going to rule um, for the death penalty and they were mistaken.
0: Yeah. Not the, in in the, the, especially in Taylor's case not the last time they would take the wrong gamble <laughs> the, exactly the uh, and and I'll I'll hold off on that one for a second but so that starts they both they both get the death penalty so we can close the book on a trial we've we've got that bit of justice of having these two savages never getting out again um and supposedly getting lethal injection at some predetermined time but then comes the first appeal Judge, uh, Judge was drunk. Was their first appeal, if I'm correct. I I kept well, my notes of your timeline, and then I found the awesome timeline at the end of your book. And I was like, oh, okay.
1: The, the judge had arrived at his ruling. It was all over but the shouting, if you will. They broke for lunch. At lunch. And had I been the judge, I think I'd have done the same thing. Um, He had lunch and he had a drink with lunch and he was seen having the drink at lunch. And that gave them enough, um, enough of an edge to say, we don't know if the judge was intoxicated. Um, the people that were with the judge claimed he was not. The judge claimed he was not, but it gave them open the door for the first appeal, and it was one right after the other after the other. And um,
0: yeah, yeah. So there's the first appeal. Um, the judge um, litigating that or adjudicating that appeal dies in a building inspection. He, yeah. he he,
1: he was trying a civil case. Um, they were going to take the jury to the site of um, a dangerous building. Um, no one goes ahead and looks. Um, anticipates they allow the judge to walk in. There is no stairs. There's no floor. But it's dark and he can't see and he falls, um, falls through. the. There was just a big dark opening, hit his head and um, died. And it was one of just um, I hate to use the term comedy, but the expression comedy of errors, one thing after the next thing, after the next thing related to this case. Um you know, there's a whole section about Kareem Hurley, the the guy <laughs> yeah. that, you know, the guy that that um, gave gave the uh, the tips that led investigators to um, uh, Taylor and Nunley, and um, he had his own little. You know, truth is stranger than fiction. What happened to him? And he is now uh, a permanent residence in one of our one of our finer finer correctional facilities in the state, and will be staying there, um, hopefully, for the rest of his life. That was what he was sentenced to. So, um, you yeah,
0: know, the, it's the, sorry the the one civic duty. When I was reading that, it's the, the the one civic duty this dude ever does in his life for money he just wants the nine thousand dollars but that nine thousand dollars eventually leads him to a life prison sentence so it's this uh if we could put karma in that chapter I, that'd be, that'd know, be perfect.
1: sometimes what you put out into the universe really does come back to get you and and that was clearly one of those one of those situations
0: yeah so so we get our sentence on in 91 uh appeal uh goes through 95, 96. Mm-hmm. Uh Nunley gets his date in 97, and that gets um he gets a stay, or was that Taylor? That was Nunley. Nunley gets a stay. Um Taylor gets a stay, and then another one in so that puts us to oh six. Taylor's postponed. And I only mention this because I'm thinking of the Harrisons every time this mm-hmm. happens. Um Nunley's postponed in 10 um finally in 14 and uh, and correct me if i'm wrong but the harrisons uh, were they they didn't go to the first couple attempts to execute no. these guys were they trying no. to was that a, a matter of them being bigger than the situation of them just trying to rise above it and put it behind them yes or?
1: they did not want to go at that time and and witness the execution um, Janelle Harrison never did witness an execution. She went um, accompanied Bob to Terre Missouri, which is the where the facility is located, that they they actually um, do the executions. Um, but they elected not to go. Um finally um when Taylor and Nunley were executed, Bob Harrison was um was there to witness that.
0: Yeah. And and that's and that was a question I had throughout was uh, you know, because at some point and I and I believe when I was talking to Rod Statler about uh a similar situation in um Michigan, it was a uh the East Lansing uh serial killer and how some of the families just they built their entire lives on that next appeal, and it was it was almost um you could see it hurt them and you could see it, they they just so focused on it that it was taking away from the rest of you know what the rest of their lives there's room for growth and they just got so focused on finding that justice that he that the way it was explained it's, it was like they they weren't seeing the bigger picture or seeing what else there could be you know mm-hmm. so that's what I was I was kind of wondering about that with those first kind of those first attempts um and then uh, so finally in 14 uh, Taylor's executed. And I, I wanted to come back to that, uh, to that gamble. <laughs> so he leaves for the death house. And, and I I apologize if I'm spoiling, but uh, oh, no, this, no, no there's so many great nuggets. That's just the way you laid it out was. Uh, right. So Taylor is leaving for the death house and he's like, I don't need a, I don't need a last meal. I'll be back here before, you know, Saturday night live comes on. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah. He was convinced that he would be back. And um, the two little towns fairly, fairly close in proximity. One, the prison in Potosi, Missouri, which was originally where executions were also conducted. Um, now it's in Terre, which is actually there when you first enter the criminal je- or, or the corrections System, um, that's their intake center and and also a prison, but that's where they do the executions. And he was convinced that you know he'd be back on the shuttle and, and sent back to Potosí, and you know didn't ask for a special meal for dinner. Did just ate what was on the menu and just happy to do so because he was convinced that it wasn't going to happen.
0: Uh, to uh, to be a fly on the wall when that realization finally hit him would have probably been a, a real gem, I would yeah. I would think, you know, yeah. um, and then Nunley goes in 15, uh, finally, so that the the door shut and uh, Mr. Harrison goes to those two, correct? Yes. Yes. And uh, there was a point in the book um, that I thought was very important. You mentioned earlier, you know, the the price that, you know, your husband is a homicide investigator pays the the price you pay at home The your whole family's uh, affected by the job it just is that's just the way it is um but there was one of the detectives and i i can't find my highlight for him uh but he drives all the way out to the execution which is a multi-hour drive not knowing what time it's going to happen elects not to be with the group you guys want as a group or they Mm -hmm. that group that party went together he needed all that time after the execution he said to process last 25 years and I I felt he, like when I read that he, there's so much more there that
1: He drove from Kansas City for for that execution he drove from can straight from Kansas City it's um Bontair is about uh oh, 45 minutes maybe an hour south of um St. Louis so you've got 4 hours If you're on the interstate from Kansas City to St. Louis, and then it's all kind of like back road, rural Missouri to get to um, to get to Bonterre. He drove from Kansas City, witnessed the executions, got in his car and drove all the way back to Kansas City.
0: Yep, Yep. Just because he wanted to process that 25 years of waiting. Yes, yes. Yeah, and that's and I mean, well, like you said, um, I mean, and you you've got the 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 family history and professional history to to show it. You don't let those cases go once uh, the judge rules the first time. It's it's with you until it's over. You know, no, unless and it's not I, over. Yeah.
1: It's well, and and I'll give you a, a an example. It's it's a little off topic, but not um, how cases stay with you for some reason. I guess being 22 years in homicide, it's inevitable. My husband had a lot of what I call the little girl cases. And there was one little girl, and it was a stranger abduction, um, who was up north, um, the northern part of the city, north of the river is what we call it. And she was on I-29. She was she was coming from work. She was getting on... Um, she was on the entrance ramp trying to get onto I 29. She ran out of gas. Little girl named Crystal Kipper. And um, David was able to, um, they never found Crystal's body. They did have a viable suspect. He had committed another abduction and assault, and that individual, that victim, was able to escape. So they pretty much, they knew who the guy was. Um, Guy ends up killing himself uh, in jail, won't tell where Crystal's body is. This has been 20 some odd years ago. My husband and I can be on the highway, I 29, driving up the highway, and I I, you know, we'll be talking about, hey, we need to get the tires rotated on the car, need to get it in to get an oil change, yada, 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 and boom, without batting an eye, without looking to his left, he will point at the window and say, There's the spot that Crystal Kipper was abducted. And I say this because it's top of the mind, because we just went to a wedding north of the river for the weekend, I-29, I thought we're going to a wedding, it's fall, it's beautiful, whatever, boom, those cases stay with those individuals. And in that particular case, it's horrible because there is no, no solving of the case. So I think with Al Valconer, who was the detective, the lead detective on the case, being able to say yes, there's an end to this part of the case. I can get back in my car and close the door on this and put miles behind me. It had to, it had to offer some healing. Not as much as we'd like to see, certainly, but he was able to do that, and um, I think that anyone in law enforcement—I don't think people really realize these are human beings that see the ugliest turnover, you know, turnover the the dirt or the leaf or the whatever—and see the underbelly of society at its very worst. And that's the stuff that nightmares are made of.
0: Yeah. And it's uh, when I was when I noticed that line about about him just taking those hours and just driving. It's uh, I mean, it occurs to you like like you were saying, we usually fight to a draw at best. You know, when Mm -hmm. you're in patrol, you want the crime stats down. But there's only so much you can do, because no matter what you say to a particular call, you're on the corner and and the fight's going to break right back out. Mm -hmm. Maybe you win that time. Maybe you don't. Um Please, most of the time our cases end in please. And we often think that they are exponentially less than they should be um, working dope. You're lucky if you can, you know, if you can, if you can take a, a little bit off the street, maybe, maybe somebody doesn't get to make that one decision that sends them down that road that day, but it's more often than not, you're fighting to a draw, you know, just trying to keep, keep the balance. But for him, that, that, those, that lone win, that rare win, he can just, mm-hmm. You just deal with it all the way home. And that's, that was, that was, I mean, it was a small part of that book, but it was pretty powerful, you know, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, they're, you know, you're, you're out dealing with the sewer society and then on Saturday you're supposed to be hanging out at the birthday parties and, you know, right. playing at the park. So it's, right. it's a, it's an interesting job for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, I've, I've had you going for like an hour and I I know it's a Tuesday <laughs> night, and I appreciate it. And I and yeah, like you mentioned, the uh, the Kareem part of that book, some of the other parts of the book that we didn't get to. I I, part of me doesn't doesn't want to give it away. But another part of me, uh, we could keep going for hours, <laughs> you know. Um, So I appreciate the hour you've given me. Um, But I would like to uh, to say, be, you know, before we wrap it up with your experience, with your family's experience in law enforcement, I, whenever I've got somebody who was sworn on, I, I ask the same question. Uh, thinking of a rookie um, looking at that job application today, what's the advice you would give them uh, um if they're jumping into this, this law enforcement world?
1: It's, it's such a different world than when I entered it, but it is a calling and it's, it's not a nine to five job. It's not something that you can put on the shelf when you get home and to just Um, Maintain some balance in your life when you put that uniform on and and um, walk the walk and are the protectors and are the ones who the courageous ones that run to the sound of shots being fired when everybody else is running away. When you have the opportunity to decompress, to set it aside for a little while, um, do so. Don't ever pass up an opportunity um, to spend time with family, to do something that you want to do, to keep truly keep a balance um, in your life. And, and um, you'll find that um, life becomes a lot more precious for what you're going to see but you are only as good to people as you are to yourself. I mean, and I don't mean that in a, a kindness way. You are only as, as um, strong and able to help people um, as, you know, you are um, in taking care of yourself. So take care of yourself so that you can take care of others and and be safe.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I had a sergeant that said, uh, when I was just starting, he's like, when, when your shift's over, it's over. When you leave, when you leave the city limits, don't think about it again until you come back. Just have that something separate, uh, uh, you know, or you can, you can get, you uh, get obsessed with it, but absolutely. Thank you for the advice. And, um, so what's next, uh, what's the next project for you?
1: Um, (laughs) There, I've got a couple of things in the works. I don't always write dark things. Um, but then again, yes, I do. <laughs> um, I have a couple of, of uh, stories published in Chicken Soup for the Soul. So that's, that is, you know, um, a lighter, more positive side to things. I'm working on a, a book of short stories, true short stories about um, people that, That made an impact on my life, hopefully to help people take a look at, you know, when I was a little kid and things that the gestures and the small things that we do for each other that you don't realize have such a lasting impact on others. Um, I'm also doing research on a serial killer case here. The They were the river murders where prostitutes were um, murdered and had their legs cut off and were thrown into the Missouri River. Um, uh, I'm, so I'm working on that. And um, I'm also um, found out through Ancestry.com. You find the most amazing things. <laughs> um, that um we I had a great aunt who used to say, we had a witch in the family. Oh, okay, you know, uh, that's that's wonderful. Well, we did. And it was actually, <laughs> she was actually the last victim of the Salem witch trials. And um, and she wasn't a witch, she was just a just a lady. Um, so I'm doing research on that and kind of looking at um what what she went through and I'm going to try and do kind of a a fictionalized biography of her to try and give her a voice. Um, She give her um, her her um, hanging was in 1691. And murders were were uh, convicted in 1991. Um, But really, you know, Three hundred years. There's a short span, I think, of people that um, deserve a voice, Mm -hmm. and so um, it's it's been very educational the the process. So I'm I'm working on that as well. Um, That's
0: that's a that's a wide variety.
1: it It is, but you know it's just, and I do have a tendency to be a little you know a little unfocused, so I could work on one thing, and when it becomes a little too much, I can go off and and work on the next one, but um,
0: yeah, I have the exact same problem, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, but
1: yeah. um sooner or later we we get them all pulled together, and they come together as a nice story, and um. So that's that's where I'm headed.
0: Well, when whatever you got coming up next, feel free to come back and we can chat about it. Um, I'm, oh, gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna get started on in the rain through the rain
1: through the rain. Yeah, yeah. Is I'm is gonna just, get
0: started on that next.
1: It has just been such a pleasure, and and thank you for um, sharing Anne's story and um, mm-hmm. keeping her memory alive because I th- I think that's really important and. Um, you know there's so many cases like that far too many cases yep. but um you know allowing the public to 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 hear the 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 story and understand and um you know with the death penalty i have to tell you i um, have seen it firsthand now twice and um those two individuals were treated with dignity, respect in a very sterile, um, quiet environment. Um, when they were executed, it was the same process that if you had a terminal disease and elected to um, for right to right to die treatment, it is the exact same process. And it is so counter to what Anne experienced. And and I think that's important for people to know. Um, and um, there was, it was, if you can go gently into that good night, that is clearly what those two individuals did. So
0: yeah, and it's, uh, it, it it always opens up the, um, that question that I think has become more and more, I don't know how it swung that way, but um the criminal justice system is for the criminals. It's not exactly. for the victims. And uh,
1: exactly. I
0: don't know how you swing that back around because it seems like it'd be an easy sell um, putting the victims in the spotlight instead of the criminals in the spotlight. And uh, I, I don't know why I, that doesn't happen.
1: I think if we have more opportunities to give. The Ann Harrison's of the world a voice to. um to rally, um, sort of a war cry against all these sites that have murderabilia. Yeah. Um, to not, um, not give a hero status to to um, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. To put a Hollywood spin on things, because I'm here to tell you, there is no dead man walking. It is it was they don't raise you up on a cross and, and you say your last words to whatever and wailing and screaming. It it is very dignified. Um but to focus on the victims and not make make it as attractive. And and I see that I see a lot of improvements when you see a lot of these um. TV shows, true crime, um, your podcasts, where people are saying, we're not going to talk about, we're not going to glorify these individuals that went out there. These are, you know, this isn't Jesse James out there doing whatever. We're going to talk about the victims. We're going to talk about justice. We're going to talk about good and evil and letting good triumph over evil. We're going to use words like healing. Um, I think that's how we get in front of it. Uh, hopefully yeah. that's, that's, that's my dream. That's my wish anyway.
0: Yeah. I think of when, when we have the opportunity, especially when I have the opportunity to contrast the, the savagery of, of the individuals involved and just make these people to look like the absolute savages they are. And nobody wants to, nobody ever wants to discuss that. We have a, there's people that make that decision in life to become a savage and to not become a savage exactly they don't deserve a second of our sympathy exactly
1: Um, and you know it's i and i say in the book you know michael taylor came from a great family they were they were a good family he had a good upbringing they were church-going people and you know he made an informed decision to do what he chose to do
0: yep yeah. And, and the way he ended up going out it like you said, is very, very, a lot uh, le- more than he deserved, you know, yeah. but uh, yeah. So I don't know, but, but thanks again for joining me tonight. And, oh, thank uh, and you for
1: having me. It, yeah, it has you, uh, just been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. And um, if anything else comes out, hit me up again. I'm, I, I, will. I I had a lot Absolutely. of fun. All right. Thank you. I do oh, too. Uh, website, socials, anything? I always forget to ask that.
1: <laughs> um, I, the book is on Amazon. I have an Amazon central page, a Goodreads page. Um, I am on Facebook and I have a website with kind of a strange little name that started out as just a, a writing moniker. It's, uh, scarletinkwell.com and it's one word scarlet with two T's. Um, cause I thought that was creative. Um, so scarletinkwell.com.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Marla. I appreciate it. Thank you, it. John. All right. and It's uh, been a thank, pleasure. Thank you. Um, and everybody, uh, thank you for, uh, for joining us tonight. And I will talk to you next week.
2: Max, Banks, and Viejo mounted rickety old wooden stairs, which cracked and popped under their weight. Thompson, after sprinting from the apartment perch, fell in behind them. In approaching the door, each member of the team covered a different field of fire, Viejo was on point, carrying a battering ram. The two patrol units pulled up in front of the house and the officers dismounted to provide perimeter security. Viejo paused at the front door. Thompson locked eyes with a perimeter unit before turning and squeezing Banks' shoulder. In sequence, Banks squeezed degello's shoulder, who in turn squeezed the shoulder of Viejo. Viejo grinned. ''Police! Search warrant!'' Viejo yelled. When Viejo hit the door... The heavy iron battering ram struck just under the doorknob. The door was ancient, its brittle wood shattering under the impact. Viejo backed up a step and hugged the wall of the tight porch. Max charged the door and hooked to the right. Banks was second in the door and covered the left side of a small living room and set of stairs leading up that side of the house. Thompson smoothly cruised past Max and Banks and made his way further into the house. He and Max cleared room by room as they went. Banks held his position until he felt Viejo behind him, and they made their way slowly up the stairs. ''Police!'' they called at random intervals. ''Show your hands!'' Banks and Viejo mounted the second floor and quickly secured the upstairs. They reached the final room of the second floor and yelled, ''Claire!'' signaling they had found nothing. The two detectives looked at each other before filing back downstairs. ''Quiet in here!'' Viejo's comment froze in his throat as a sudden, crashing sound rattled the house. "'Shit!' Banks breathed. "'Coming down!' he yelled as the two men ran down the stairs. Banks hit the first floor after leaping the last four stairs and landed with a boom on the warped old wood. He could hear breaking furniture and shattering glass coming from a room to the rear of the living room where they had entered. He and Viejo were steps from the doorway when two figures burst from the room. Banks was just a step too late for the first, but the second was just a step too late to get away. Banks threw his non-gun hand out and caught the fleeing suspect with a clothesline and dropped the man to the floor in a huff. Police! he shouted. Don't move! He locked eyes with the suspect, a kid maybe in his twenties. He was white, wearing checkered shorts and a polo that could only be described as the brightest orange he'd ever seen. Banks put the muzzle of his forty five in the center of the kid's chest and ordered, Don't move! But he knew even before the kid flinched that it was on. The briefest of flashes behind the suspect's blue eyes telegraphed what was to come. The kid roared and swiped at the pistol. Banks yanked back to protect his gun and had to duck and block a wild punch with his non-gun hand. The kid scrambled to his feet like a cornered animal and took another swing at Banks before breaking for the rear door. Banks gritted his teeth and just before the kid was out of reach lashed out with a front kick to the small of his back. The boost in momentum carried the kid off course from the freedom he was willing to assault a police officer for, and he ran smack into the peeling paint and wood of the doorframe. The impact stunned the suspect, and he crumpled to the floor, holding his hands over his face. Blood bubbled through his fingers. The kid moaned as he slowly rolled into the fetal position. I bet that hurt, Banks said. He yanked the suspect's hands behind his back and handcuffed him as the kid howled. A quick pat-down revealed a quarter of an ounce of what looked like weed and a handful of pills he figured was ecstasy. "'You sit tight,' he told the kid and left him to wallow as blood streamed from nose and split lip. Banks looked out the rear door to see if the other suspect had gotten away. He chuckled when he saw the kid. Another white kid dressed much the same as his compadre except wearing a pink polo shirt, lay sprawled on his back as if he were in the process of making a snow angel.' He looked unconscious. Poppy and Wilkes stood over him. When Banks looked at her, she shrugged her shoulders while cradling her car 15 as if she'd just found an abandoned puppy. <laughs>